Okay. So welcome to another show. So today we have Bruce Strom, who's on the show today, and he has his own YouTube channel talking about philosophy, morality, and history, to name but a few other things as well. So welcome to today's show, Bruce. Well, thank you for having me. I, I very much uh, enjoy coming on. So Fantastic. So I've actually had a look at quite a lot of your videos on uh, YouTube. You're doing you know, pretty well now. You've got some, you know, quite a number of thousand views on uh, at least a couple of your, of your videos. So philosophy is quite a broad, broad subject, isn't it? And there's uh, obviously a history of, you know, the pre-Socratic, Socratic, Hellenistic, Roman philosophies. Which of those are your favourite and, and why? Well, I don't, I think the favorite, my favorite, well, philosophy is really three different strands. I mean, you have the, um, and I think uh, modern philosophers tend to look at the first strand, which is the physics or the uh, philosophy of knowledge, uh, the metaphysics. And that's um, the theory of knowledge. And all of those schools of thought have really spun off into their own separate fields, whether it be psychology or medicine or uh, biology or whatever. And then you also have the very important uh, topic of logic, because you have to know how to speak to each other in a logical manner to have a meaningful conversation. You have to be careful to, say, define your terms. Otherwise, you're talking past each other. But the most important strain of philosophy to the ancients is moral philosophy, ethics. And really the and what really turned me on to the skeptic, what really turned me on to the Stoics was a uh, lecture by Luke Timothy Johnson, who was a professor with the teaching company, and his lectures were never brought to Wondrium. They've never promoted these lectures, but he had a series of lectures on Greco-Roman uh, moral philosophers, which really turned me on to the Stoics. And a lot of the philosophers tend to elevate Plato and deprecate the, the Stoics, but really I think the Stoicism is the dominant form of philosophy. And I think you can look at Stoicism with a small s and with a big s. Of course, the biggest Stoicism started with Zeno. He was a cynic, he was a um, philosopher after Plato, but really he was a continuation of the cynic philosophy. And the cynic philosophers started with Antisthenes, who was a student of Socrates. And uh, and so the Stoics inherited much of the cynic thought, the Greek cynic thought. And um, but I think really for the smallest Stoicism is really beginning with the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I think that uh, here again, that is the key to understanding much of the philosophy of the ancient world, because the ancient world, quite frankly, was a warrior society. How did the you know how did the how did, how did the Iliad begin? Rage. That's the first word of the um, the Iliad, and it discusses how Achilles and Agamemnon are fighting over a concubine they seized in war, and the attitudes that you're forced to have in an ancient warrior culture are really stoic virtues, because in an ancient warrior culture you didn't worry about retirement. Okay, you didn't worry about retirement because um, that just wasn't a concern. You were worried that before you died, some enemy city-state, some hostile enemy city-state might totally defeat your city-state, slaughter all the military-age men, and enslave the women and children, and burn everything in sight, and take take away everything that you owned. And uh, that was the fear. And that fear just kind of like undergirds the entire entirety of the ancient world. And in uh, another strain, like Dr. Philip Carey, another teaching company professor, said this, you know, another thing about the ancient world is there are still beasts out in the woods. And, you know, whether or not your children would wander around in the fields and get mauled by wild beasts was a real concern. Whereas today, so, you know, they wanted to control the passions because they didn't want to be like the wild beasts. Whereas today, you know, um, our concern is very different. Uh, we don't want to be like, um, we want to be passionate. We want the passions because we don't want to be like robots, the unfeeling robots. They're in so many of our science fiction movies. You know, so it's a different, the ancient world was a different world. And, um, and, and I think that just undercuts so much. Many of the hard sayings, so-called hard sayings in the Bibles are explained by this, um, by this, 
the fact that this was a the ancient world was a warrior culture. Yeah, I mean, you've gone through quite a lot there from the, for me, probably the funniest philosopher, Diogenes, the, the cynic, moving into the fact that you believe, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that Zeno wasn't necessarily the, the founder of Stoicism, but it started with, as you said, the the the, the Iliad, etc. For me as well, you, you also mentioned the fact that it was important for people to be able to fight in the past because obviously it was a case of protecting their homes whereas obviously now you know everyone's got a mortgage everyone owns their own house and it was very much a different kettle of fish uh, in the past stoicism wise i think for me a quote that really sums up stoicism pretty well is the marcus aurelius one that says to be like the rock that the waves keep crashing over it stands unmoved and the raging of the sea falls still around it what does stoicism mean to you specifically and just a, a quick caveat on that as well because maybe this is a two-part approach one is a stoic philosophy and what that fundamentally means in terms of i don't know controlling your mindset or remaining unemotional but coming back to the war side and who your favorite philosopher is obviously you mentioned plato but obviously aristotle was you know the, the subsequent philosopher to plato and he was mentor to Alexander the Great. So does the mentorship fall in, in line with that, the old importance of war, and then obviously moving into Stoic philosophy, and does that all form part of a, a single journey? Um, well, I think that, uh, well, it's interesting, you know, Aristotle was uh, actually influenced Alexander the Great. Of course, Alexander the Great was pure warrior, but he was he also had a lot of uh, stoic virtues in that, uh, you know, he went over to Persia and, you know, he behaved. One of the reasons for his success is he did not behave as a warrior should behave in some respects. I mean, when he defeated uh, Darius, he took his mother and his he, of course, captured his harem, including his mother, Darius's mother. And he treated them with kindness and respect as befitting royalty. And so he didn't. And then he had his men, he and his men married many Persians and, and you know, and, and, and Indians. And so, you know, it's he didn't behave as as in all respects as a conqueror would behave. He behaved as if he was uh, the true king of Persia. So uh, so he he had better luck of course plato uh tried to uh influence the the war the um the king in sicily being his tutor and almost got imprisoned and possibly executed for his efforts he so that was not a successful effort and of course we have marcus aurelius the true philosopher king who unfortunately um ruined his legacy by his son commodus who was probably one of the most bloodthirsty roman emperors of history so there's a mixed, a mixed bag there. So, you know, it's politics is always messy. Politics is always messy. But I think Stoicism, what, uh, what appeals to me about Stoicism is um, it lets you cope with life. And Stoicism is really a reflection of the Christian virtues. And what is the main Christian virtues? You should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor. The concept that you should love your neighbor is throughout Stoicism. You can see it in Seneca, you can see it in Marcus Aurelius, you can see it in Epictetus, you can see it in all the Stoic philosophers. And, um, and, and also they talk about God as if he's a monotheistic God. The, the te technical term is henotheist because they never deny the existence of the other gods. They just never talk about them. All the Marcus Aurelius does drop a line here and there to the other gods. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, that's really... What, uh, um, what appeals to me about Stoicism is it teaches you how to lead a godly life. I mean, that, that's really the crux of our you know, time here on earth, is living a godly life. And I think Luke Timothy Johnson, the, the professor that, that inspired me, made the point that the Stoic philosophers were evangelists. You know, they went out and tried to convert their neighbors into saying, hey, Stoic philosophy will teach you how to lead a godly life. 
And these people were like the, they were like the, um, the Stoic philosophers were like the Anlanders of the day and the Dr. Phil's of the day. They wanted to really teach people how to live a better life. Do you believe That's that good. virtues can be learned then, or do you think they are inherent? Because I know that there have some Socratic arguments as to whether or not virtues can be taught or not. What's your what's your stance on that? Well, my stance is my stance on that is very simple: is that of course you can. It takes it takes a little bit of effort to learn how to live a godly life because, well, the enemy is so deceitful, and. Uh, that's why the Judea, the uh, Judaist, uh, the the Jewish traditions are founded on the basis of the study of the Torah and the study of what it takes, what you should do to live a godly life. And there, of course, they have many ceremonial type laws, but they also have a lot of ethical laws that are very helpful and very useful and really produce the foundation of um, of Christianity. And so. And then there's a lot of the sayings of the the Jewish uh, rabbis that are likewise uh, are very stoic in nature. You know, like my favorite one is from Hillel that I've always found inspiration from. He says, uh, and you can see that sometimes today. I feel kind of like alone as a Christian uh, in in this country because so many of my Christian brothers say things that well just aren't Christian. And Hillel once said that uh, if you find yourself in a country where there are no men be a man, which is very, a very stoic-like quote. And uh, so stoicism is one of those type of default philosophies. It just kind of evolves when you're challenged, uh, when life challenges you. Like one of the things that has always um, perplexed me about my fellow Christians is they seem to want to pray to God for God to take suffering away from their lives. And as you know, uh, God just doesn't do that. I mean, we all suffer. And um, yeah, and then Stoicism teaches that regardless of the suffering, we should endure our sufferings, and uh, because God sends the rain on both the good and the bad. I mean, and... for me, the, the suffering is is imperative to living a good life. We can't have just an easy life. Imagine you've got a child, and they want sweets every five minutes. You, as the father, or you as the mother, and, and you as the parent have got to say no sometimes and from the child's perspective they think that you know you as a parent or you as god is being idiotic essentially by not giving them what they want and you know they are chasing chasing hedonism to an extent but the argument i say is look suffering is what helps us to develop into the individual that we need to be if you go to the gym you're going to feel pain but it's going to mean that you get a better body at the end you become fitter and stronger but as you said, stoicism is something that helps you in that period of time where you're going through that pain, you're going through that suffering, but understanding that you need to come out the other side. To have virtue, you need to have those people who lack virtue. To have um, the stars in the sky, you need to have a dark background against which the stars can shine. So for each virtue, there is an opposite, um, uh, an opposite trait that obviously... It's a contrast. So I think that you need both. You can't have an idealistic world where everyone is perfect. It just doesn't work like that. Um, for me anyway, on, on a realistic basis, yes, idealistically, everyone would be perfectly virtuous, but unfortunately, it, it, it doesn't work like that. Why is it that ethics interests you more than um, epistemology or, or metaphysics, for example? Why is it ethics that specifically interests you? Is it because it, you can utilise that in your own life or is there another reason? Well, it's like the the rabbi said. The rabbi says, uh, you know, the the, you know, what what you you sum up the, you sum up the Judeo Christian Christian tradition, and how's it summarized? You love love God and love your neighbor. All else is commentary, and that's the crux of it. And my favorite saying is Saint Augustine, because uh, Saint Augustine uh, basically teaches us that. In all his writings, he reminds us that that's the most important thing. He explicitly reminds us that loving God is uh, and loving your neighbor is key. And I'd like to say that loving loving God, even if you're not, if you don't want to buy into the Christian point of view, I mean, it's love of the love of the ideal, 
the love of the ideal, the idea that there is a um, that there is a truth, a universal truth out there that you should as ascribe to. You've mentioned Judeo-Christian a, a couple of times over the, the, the last few answers. Why is it then that if there's so many similarities between obviously the, the Jews, the Christians, and in, indeed the Muslims, essentially they believe the same story to an extent, but the Jews believe that Jesus wasn't the son of God. The Christians believe that he was, and the, and the Muslims believe that, yes, he was a prophet, but he wasn't the prophet. Why is there so many arguments when essentially you all inherently believe the same fundamental beliefs to an extent, though? That's obviously a caveat there, of course. Well, because simply, I think the best the best answer to that is a, a charming book by which I'm going to cover eventually, uh, the Screw Tape Letter, the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and that's a fascinating topic. In other words, the idea is is that the demons are real, and they're um, and they are and, and maybe they're in our minds, maybe they're just part of our psyche, maybe they're not physical human beings, although Christianity teaches us that they are, um, but. Um, but basically, the idea is, well, yeah, uh, God does not want us. I mean, the, the demons do not want us to be devout. They do not want us to pray to God and be devout and worship God and reverence God. But if they fail in that bent, if they fail in that venture, well, then they'll drop back and then uh, attempt that. Then they'll tempt us to be hypocritical and judgmental. And so you see that in all in all of the um, conversely, like if we want to study scripture, the demons don't want us to study scripture. But if we are not successful in that, then they want us to take pride in studying scripture. So, you know, it's I think that's the best answer. So for those, for those people who don't believe in God at all, they're you know probably listening to this thinking, well, you know, because God does have its negative connotations nowadays, doesn't it? Especially in the secular society that we live in today, um, and the generosity that goes on around. What's what's your argument for for God? Is it the the miracle based argument? Is it cosmological? Is it the teleological based argument? What is it that you can, for you anyway, have some sort of um, evidence? And I know again, evidence is a word that's that's um, that has got its associations. But what is it that you can take as evidence, or is it 100% faith-based? Um, you know, it's the, the dilemma is that if you have, I don't really like to get into the arguments of, you know, whether or not God exists, because to, to a certain extent, they're pointless. I mean, I think that uh, God does not need us to believe that he exists to exist. And to a certain extent, uh, if we don't know that God does exist, but we instead decide to lead, lead a godly life in a way that's even better because then we are living a godly life with no prospect of reward. So I think ethics is really love of neighbor is love of neighbor and love of God. Love of the ideal is the core of life and the existence of God. Well, we can argue about that if we'd like, but that sometimes is a distracting debate. And I don't really like to argue about it uh, ad infinitum because that's not the, um, there's nothing wrong with saying God exists because we want him to exist. Because people who want to live a godly life want the God to exist. And people who want to live a more selfish or hedonistic life don't like a world where God exists. So in the long run, I think to, to a certain extent, it's a pointless argument. No, that's that's fair. To be fair, because yeah, as you say, for for people, we will have confirmation bias, don't we? So any argument that you put forward is going to fall in line with either the fact that you that you agree that there is a god, or that you don't agree with that there's a god. So yeah, in some respects, it is an argument that's a self fulfilling prophecy. So just coming back, yeah, so to really, the, the argument should be: Do you want to live a godly life or not? That's what you should argue about. That's the argument that's important, not whether or not God exists. But whether or not you want to live a godly life. So bringing That's that back to, to Stoicism, then. So how does this? Because I know that you're a Christian. How do they fall in line with each other from from your experience? And what are the important parts of Stoicism that people can, if they don't believe in Christianity or or any religion or God, for for them, how can they use Stoicism in their own life just to improve it 
without any connotations of God involved. Well, so many of the quotes of the Stoics uh, sound like the New Testament anyway. And they had a direct, in the, of course, the Jewish tradition influenced the um, Christian tradition very deeply. But second in line was Stoicism. Stoicism was a secondary and major influence in Christianity. And you see it most vividly in the writings of the Desert Church Fathers and the Eastern, the early Eastern Church Fathers. They just sound like they're Stoics. Like you get the Philokalia, which is the uh, one of the compendiums of works of the um, Eastern Orthodox Church. And um, and it's also the first millennium. So it's it's in the Catholic tradition as well. Uh, all the Catholics kind of deprecate it. Uh, the the last chapter in the English translation of the first volume is a um, is what used to be the first chapter in the Greek, and it's it's a Stoic writing. It's a it's re really a writing by a Stoic philosopher, and so and of course Aristotle influenced Stoicism deeply because he Stoicism borrowed a lot of his lists of the virtues and vices, and so. And to a certain extent, Plato is a the you you look at Xenophon's writings uh, of Plato, and he is really picturing a Stoic Socrates, with a small s, of course. So, who is your favorite Stoic philosopher? Then you've you mentioned that even those from a, a pre, uh, well, from a Socratic uh, sense can also be. Have well, you can show similarities with with those of Stoicism. So, of the actual Stoic philosophers, who is your favorite and and why? I don't really know if I have a favorite. I like them all. I like the 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 main line. Epictetus is wonderful. Epictetus lived around the same. Epictetus and Seneca. They both lived around the same time of. Um, Epictetus and Seneca both lived around the time of Saint Paul, roughly. Um, you have Marcus Aurelius, which is remarkable. You have Masonius Rufus, who was the, the teacher of Epictetus, um, the big four. And then, you know, I'm going to be reading more Plutarch and more um, uh, Cicero. That's one of my next projects. I mean, I don't know that I have a favorite. They're all great, you know. Um, you know, I think we can take uh, inspiration from Epictetus because he was a, a former slave of a former slave. I mean, he was like the bottom rungs of society, and yet he uh, attracted the attention of the emperors who exiled him because he was a philosopher. But then you have on the other, you know, the other uh, extreme, you have Seneca, who was one of the most fabulously wealthy persons in the Roman Empire when he was alive. And you have Marcus Aurelius, who was the ultimate of power. He was a Roman emperor who really tried to live the, the role, the life of the Stoic philosopher. And of course, one of the more interesting questions with that is, was he a friend or foe of Christianity? And that's that's an interesting debate to itself, you know. Very. I'm, I'm, gl I'm glad you but mentioned all... the the Epictetus versus Aurelius because that, I think that's a really important part of Stoic philosophy for me, and I'm glad that you picked up on it as well. Is that you've got Epictetus at one end, you know, a former slave, and you've got the most powerful man in the world at the time or who he perceives himself to be because he didn't really know anything outside of the the, the empire and they it, it there is some fundamental similarities between the two and that's what i find to be to be so amazing because if you look at the people who run societies today they lack integrity they lack any form of um self-reflection or philosophy i mean if you look at the book meditations by marcus aurelius some of the stuff in there is just you know it's a magic really considering as you said where you know what his role was um and as you also said earlier it's a bit of a shame as to how his, his son turned out but you know people can look at that from uh if, if anyone's seen the uh the film gladiator that it's not really a, a great representation but um for, for something physical for someone to see maybe that's something they can look at um when did you get into philosophy then is it is it something that you've all always um understood or is it something was there a life change that happened for you or or was there something else that made you get into philosophy um well basically i uh, always like to read i've always liked to read philosophy and i think really the one the 
what really led me to philosophy is back when the teaching company got founded. I don't know if you've he heard of that. That's Wondrium now. They have a lot of the lectures uh, for college professors at the time. I mean, that was before YouTube days. They started before YouTube. And um, and so I've been listening to those those lectures for like 20 or 30 years now and have read, listened to the bulk of the philosophy and religious uh, videos that they have and i just i just find it fascinating and then of course you go and read them and um the blessing is since i've retired a couple of years ago i just started reading more deeply into uh many of these uh works and uh you know so i'm just plowing through them one at a time so you mentioned uh, listening to lectures what about book wise then is there any specific recommendations that you've got because you're obviously very well read it comes across just from how you're answering questions, for example, and um, linking everything together. Is there any sort of, I know this it's very difficult to say one book because you'd be like, well, you need to be reading this, that and the other. But if there's any sort of one book that you feel is a great starter book for those who maybe not sort of learned any philosophy, what would what would it be? It's really hard to say one book. I mean, any of the four philosophers that we we just the Stoics are, are easy are easy read. Plato's a difficult read. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's difficult to follow, and in, in, in places, um, the philosophy the 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 cornerstone of the Western tradition is Saint Augustine's Confessions. And any time you have a lecture series on psychology, they include a discussion of the Confessions because he. Uh, plums the inner soul what does it mean for uh, what does memory mean and he has a lot of interesting questions a lot of questions that people use to challenge christians on their faith are questions that are answered in the confessions and so that is a remarkable book um his book on saint augustine's book on on christian doctrine and uh and that's a shorter treatise and there he teaches us that uh, um we should interpret scriptures in light of the twofold love of God and neighbor. And if a verse, if a set of verses in the scriptures uh, appear not to um, follow along with that, um, with a twofold love, then those verses should be interpreted allegorically. And uh, like I say constantly, um, one of the best examples of that is the famous verse in the Psalms, where the psalmist rejoices when he bashes the heads of the Babylonian babies on the rocks. And people say, oh, how cruel is that? Well, the uh, um, Eastern Church Fathers love that verse because they interpret it this way. They say we should eliminate all the sins of our lives, you know, both the little sins and the big sins. And, uh, and many of the monastic writings are really just as even more valuable than the Stoics, uh, I think. So what are the so what are some of the answers or what are some of the questions rather that are answered in that confessions that you mentioned? Uh, if you remember, well, his biography is that he was a young he was a young man and his father was a pagan. His Christian was a mother. His his mother was a Christian, okay, and she prayed that he he be in the Catholic Church. But he thought it was backwards because the scriptures at that time were not the scriptures of the Vulgate by Jerome. Jerome was his contemporary, so that wouldn't be translated until much time later. He just saw it as a very, um, like many people today, view Christianity as a backwards, ignorant type of religion. True, true scholars wouldn't be Christian because of the uh, because of the scriptures at the time were just very. Uh, written in very bad latin in the translations he he read and so he became a manichae and a manichae is um one of the dualistic gnostic type systems um it it descended from zoroastrianism but it wasn't really true zoroastrianism and he basically came to see the the falsities in in uh in manichaeism and he also got converted to philosophy by reading Cicero's Hortensius, which unfortunately is lost to history. And so uh, he became converted, he converted to Neoplatonism before he converted to Christianity, which back in the day was a very common path to Christianity that was not uncommon. 
And he basically uh, answered many of the doubts people have about Christianity today in the confessions. But, uh, but as you know, he's a, considered a Catholic writer. So anybody with a Protestant background thinks that all uh, Catholics, uh, Catholics can't be saved still. Um, and so they deprecate all of the Catholic tradition, which is a shame. Uh, because there's a lot of wisdom in, in the church fathers. I mean, just a continuum from the Stoic philosophers, from the Greco-Roman um, Stoic philosophy and Platonic philosophy, uh, through Christianity, through today. And, you know, and they influence Protestantism uh, also, and which Protestants don't want to uh, believe, but that's true. So... Do the Jesuits fit anywhere? Because you mentioned Christianity and Rome and the Catholics. Do Jesuits fit in anywhere with this? Because I know you, you've spoken um, briefly about this on, on your YouTube channel as well. Uh, I am not a, a, an expert on Jesuits. Um, I have I did one video on the, on the Jesuits from... Um, uh, and I'm going to do another video on the early Jesuits uh, written by William O'Malley, a father... I believe it's is it Thomas? I think it's. I'm pretty sure it's William O'Malley. It's a Jesuit priest. He's famous for writing a definitive history of the Second Vatican Council and the First Vatican Council and, and the Council of Trent. And um, that's that's uh, another fascinating uh, avenue of, disc uh, of 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 learning um, because Vatican II is unimaginable. Vatican II is unimaginable without the experiences that the Catholics faced during World War II. And many of the Catholics today just don't realize the history behind Vatican II when they try and claim that it's an invalid council. And Vatican II has many of the, uh, it really, you know, the Catholic Church is, one of the forefronts of social justice and, you know, that we see today in the civil rights struggle. I mean, they, uh, you know, they, they were the, uh, they influence, they, they, the uh, Pope Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum may have been a big influence on the New Deal uh, of FDR. So, I mean, there's a great amount of history there. And, and I think a lot of Catholics don't uh, realize that. And of course, he also did a, a, a couple of books on the Jesuits. So I just basically, you know, read his book and commented on the book. Most of my videos are on are book reviews, by the way, mostly, with some of my own thoughts added to it. Do you, what's your thoughts then, if you were to give a, a, an opinion on whether or not there's a lot of hidden knowledge in the Vatican? Because obviously, they've got miles and miles of 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 literature, um, some of which you're not allowed to actually see without someone overlooking you, I believe. What are your thoughts on what could be hidden there? Uh, I don't think that they, I mean, it's like anything else. They don't like to release the, uh, some of the inner documents uh, until, until they're really historical, until they faded from uh, view. And they've already released, all of the World War II uh, archives have been fully opened. And so I don't know that there's a lot of hidden quote, hidden things, unquote, in the Vatican. Um, you know, of course, if there's any scandals, I mean, it's not fair to people to air the scandals while the people are alive or their descendants are alive. So in a way, I can see their point. But uh, but I think that that's, you're, you know, I think that's uh, Dan Brown's conspiracy theory type of stuff. I, I don't really think that there's a lot to be learned so, you know, from the stuff they're not. The stuff they're hiding, they have a reason for it, and it's not going to be hidden forever. So, what? Okay, I think, so, so on on the flip perhaps side, they hide too much. I think they hide too much. I mean, you got to remember back the Catholic histories back in the Council of Trent. They, what happened is they hid the proceedings of the Council of Trent until the early twentieth century because they feared that the Protestants would go and dig through them and kind of like cherry pick them and you know use it to crucify them so you know they're a little defensive historically and i think probably they do hide quote hide unquote too much but um i think there's less of that now so on the flip side of hiding knowledge um 
what knowledge do you think that is out there but is not well enough known? Maybe it's aesthetic, some of the aesthetic philosophy stuff. Maybe it's something very niche within philosophy. Is there anything that you think most people should know and sort of actively seek knowledge in, in that area? Because for me, there's so much stuff on, on the internet now. This Obviously, before, you used to have to go to the library and you know find the books and go through all the pages and actually look through and read an entire book. Now you can basically search for an article keywords and you can learn stuff a lot faster okay maybe not in as much depth as reading a full full book you know that's that's a given but you can get surface level knowledge a lot easier today than than you ever have done is there any, anything specifically that you feel everyone should should know oh okay um well you're asking me for hidden knowledge and then you're asking me two questions i can tell you what i can answer the hidden knowledge question there's the there's the there's the scripts. There is a complete ancient library surviving in the Herculaneum. I think that's how you say it. The sister city for Vesuvius. The problem is, is they're all charred, and they're afraid that if they, and they're very hard to read, and they're trying to figure out. Scientists are desperately trying to figure out a way to read these scrolls without unraveling them, which would totally destroy them because then they just crumble into dust, and they're just salivating the thought of there's dozens and dozens and dozens. Of 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 uh, scrolls that they know they're ancient works that they've never seen before. Maybe the Hortensius is in there, you know. And so that's that's where the that's if you're talking about hidden knowledge, well, that's that's hidden. Maybe one day scientists will figure out how to do read those scrolls, or maybe not. You know. That's but, uh, interesting, um, actually. To be fair, that's very, that's very yeah, interesting. But that's but the, the yeah, question was more of available knowledge. What people should be aware of because there's things that you know that you don't know and then there's things that you know that you sorry there's things that you don't know that you don't know and then the things that you know that you don't know so obviously say, that scroll just, just... you don't know that you don't know those things whereas obviously if you can actively say to someone look this is what you should be looking for um to give yourself a better life um obviously we've talked about stoicism and philosophy in general um but on a on a specific basis um for for people to maybe look at improving their mentality or or their psyche or whatever it's going to be um, yeah, or is it just a case thing. of reading the bible given your religious yeah. underpinning yeah the scriptures and the other commentators i think uh, people in a protestant tradition tend to deprecate the commentators because they say oh the scriptures are all you need but yet they use commentaries to help protestant commentaries to help them read the scriptures like books by billy graham you know uh and and the church fathers are really the billy grahams of the modern world so i think that um learning reading the church fathers and reading the philosophers and uh doing the hard work of reading some, some uh you know the challenging work of reading things that are you know a little more difficult to read like the platonic dialogues and um and learning how to read them i mean it's like and we have so many tools now, like a lot of these ancient documents, they're, they're so long-winded. I tell you what I do a lot of times is I go on Wikipedia and look at the summaries and pick out what I want to read out of them and skip the ones, skip the portions that I don't want to read. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you miss a little bit that way. So uh, I think you just need to do the work and, 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 and follow um, the, the commentators. I mean, now you have, like the University Press has a series of um, the Church Father commentaries on the scriptures, and they have another series of the uh, the Reformation thinkers uh, and their commentary commentaries on scripture, and so you can summarize it from there and go go backwards. Um, just you know, just you know, instead of learning, instead of watching football and learning about football statistics and all these other things, you know, read what will improve your lives. Because it's like it's like the Ten Commandments. I mean, look at the Ten Commandments. It's basically it starts off with, uh, you know, uh, if you if you have proper thoughts, okay, then you if you if you get your thinking right, then your words are going to come out right, and your thinking and your words are going to come out are, are, are proper and and holy. Well, then your actions will be holy, you know. And so that's basically it. It takes living a godly life takes a certain amount of study if you're going to. Because that is how you determine, uh, ferret out the deceptions that are, um, you know, that are 
society throws at us. And one of the deceptions that I see a lot is this concept of what is self-love. And you hear this in any of the divorce support groups or any of the therapy type sessions is, oh, you got to love yourself before you can love your neighbor. Well, where that thought came from? But, you know, when you correct until you probe it, people don't really put a lot of thought into what that actually means. And like anything else, um, uh, where you start is what is the definition of self-love? Because Eastern church fathers say that, you know, self-love is horrible. You know, self selfishness is the opposite of selflessness. So, of course, you shouldn't love yourself. And then St. Augustine says, yeah, you should love yourself because then you can love your neighbor. But then you start probing St. Augustine and his definition of self-love is there's good self-love and there's bad self-love. So he's saying the same thing, except with different, he's defining the words a little bit differently, but the message is the same. And his yeah. definition of the good self-love are just like the um, the monastic church fathers on saying um, what selfless love is. This is, but this is it though. So, like, you can take this again back to to the Roman times, where they, you know, they use gladiators and they use football now, as you said, sport to basically uh, not coerce the masses, but basically blind them from what's actually going on. I mean, the word sport I think comes from the French desporto, which means to to um, basically keep you away from or or misguide in 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 some respect. So, what you're saying is instead of doing that incorporate yourself to the academy to the lyceum and actually read about these these great philosophers which will improve your life as, as you've said um rather than you know these these small changes are what make the big difference instead of watching tv for an hour watching love island or whatever bullshit you want to watch read or listen to your youtube channel or listen to a podcast or read a book um i mean look at the, all the people behind you on on the, the the school of Athens photo i believe that is isn't it um Look at all the wisdom there. Um, you know, even by reading these things, it, it activates your mind. You know, it, it, reading improves your memory as well, doesn't it? Um, actually, coming on to that, you're—I know you're a, um, an advocate of—of of, well, not an advocate. That's a real bad way to to, to look at that. But you're um, a proponent of of uh, dementia, aren't you? And you something that you're you you hold quite close to your heart. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Uh, well, I had uh, I got into that a little bit um, in an unusual manner. Uh, I'm in an over 55 condo uh, units, and I was one of the officers. And we had a uh, neighbor that was a had advanced dementia. And he was being foreclosed upon. They were going to foreclose his house and th- kick him out on the street so they could uh, get their unpaid maintenance fees. And had been he'd been dragging this out. He had an alcoholic girlfriend and she'd been negotiating in bad faith with the attorney. We didn't really know this uh, for, for the, for the past decade. And when the money ran out, she finally left him and uh, they, they broke up quote unquote, but uh, they were going to kick him out on the street. And the reason why uh, we had one of the other neighbors in the hearing say, look, you know, there's something wrong with this guy. I think he's got dementia. You know, you really just can't kick him out. And his no, we're tired of him. You know, his his demented behavior pissed him off. I mean, I mean, he, in addition to his financial affairs, which is another sign of dementia, uh, he had uh, he was threatening people and he was harassing his neighbors. And he'd go in the office and harass the people in the office. And there's even rumors he was waving a gun around. Now we never found a gun, so I don't think that's true. But it might have been. Who knows? And um, so basically, I halted the I the, the attorney for, halt the foreclosure, and one of the officers who was my, one of my political enemies on the board decided to censure me for this six months later because he was best. And I said hello, and not only that, he had the attorney write a nasty letter to all fifteen hundred buildings in my uh, complex, and so I basically wrote a spent a couple of thousand dollars and rebutted it said on the red letters on the outside of the envelope i'm being censured because i halted the foreclosure of somebody with advanced dementia who you know who was then was able to uh, he was able to be appointed a court guardian so that he could uh, be placed in a facility and then his uh, condo sold and his debt settled in good order and um so that's kind of like how i got into it and really when you come right down to it the concept that somebody is um, 
is not responsible for their actions is, is a concept that people just do not want to accept because it's the basis of our legal tradition. It's the basis of our religious tradition. The concept that we have free will and that we are responsible for our actions is a key of everything. But as modern uh, medicine has discovered, we keep running into more and more conditions where that just simply isn't true. We're just totally captive to, uh, if we have a neurological failing, we're captive to our emotions and uh, in ways we don't totally understand. And so, um, so that's basically, uh, you know, you know, basically we need to learn how to deal with that. You know, like, um, if somebody is young and they have aging parents being alone, they may uh, have somebody who's homeless or is an alcoholic latch onto them and suck them dry for everything that they have and drain all their assets. And, and that's, and, and if they ever marry them, you're toast. You can't do anything about it under our legal system. I don't know what it's like in England. Um, so it, it's just they're just toast. And you just have to re realize that if somebody if somebody's 70 years old or even 60 sometimes, but definitely in their 70s, if they behave in a strange manner or they're saying something sexually inappropriate or they're a little bit lashing out at people, you just can't rule out dementia. You just can't. I mean, you know, so you have to be a little more patient with people who are elderly. And so it's, um, it's a very tragic, tragic condition. Um, and yeah. I think the police over here are starting to learn how to deal with mental illness in general, but not so much dementia. So that's changing somewhat slowly. So I don't know what it's like over there, those kind of issues. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's, and this is the beauty of sort of, philosophy i mean obviously bruce willis is someone who recently has been diagnosed with it as well from from my understanding um but the socratic method obviously is asking questions isn't it instead of um you know stating things so for me the question will be well what's causing the increase or uptick in dementia is it aluminium metals um fluoride things like that that's the first question what's causing it and secondly as you said how do you deal with people who've got dementia how do you protect against people who are, are going to take advantage of them how do you protect themselves against themselves you know in terms of getting themselves into 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 sticky situations so they're the answers that we need to um answer really to to improve on a situation that shouldn't you know that, that no one wants to be there but obviously all you can do is play the card that's been dealt essentially and and that's what we need to do i'm not sure what your thoughts on on it are um, but there would be my two two stances on it. Well, I think uh, the answer to that is uh, the anti-psychiatry movement back in the 70s really led to the passage of like the HIPAA laws over here, which uh, state that uh, the patients have rights and you can't really just commit people without uh, giving them agency. You know, you have to give the mentally ill a certain amount of agency because they're not totally helpless. And the, the dilemma is that there are some people who are mentally ill who have no agency. And so people will take advantage of them if, if you uh, go too far with this. And so I think, uh, I, personally, I think the society needs to dial back some of the um, uh, some of the protections they give to the patient. And you need to have more power in people, uh, you know, putting them in facilities where, you know, they uh, won't be taken advantage of. And, of course, the problem with that, anything like that, it's just, it's just like it's... Uh, Hegelian back and forth to and fro you know uh, so you just have to do the best you can but I think the best thing is is like if somebody is alone you know if, if you're if you're a uh, if you have an aging parent and they're getting in their 60s and 70s you really need to uh, not leave them alone but you need to be active in their lives and be aware of what's going on and if you can get them to move in with you or move, ne move near you you know rather, rather than being in, a, in another state which is so common today is there so, also a question of of punishment for the perpetrators who do take advantage of these people and making it um so because i I'm a strong believer that the severity of of the punishment of a crime can act as some form of deterrent now obviously it's not going to act as a deterrent for everyone and that's you know that's just the case with anything if you look at either end of any spectrum you know there's there's going to be some disparity but on the on a general basis, if there is a 
slightly positive negative reinforcement um operant conditioning you know you do something people don't like or like it's either going to make them behave more like something or less like something so could that be an option as well you know i got a i got a um a cousin who is uh you know, lived the sex, drug, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll life back in the day. You know, and now now they're elderly and they have nothing. And the problem is, is you know, the, the, you have somebody basically uh, who has no life, who has no employment history, who has no income. How can you punish them other than throwing them? You can lock them up so they won't hurt people, but there's really no way you can punish them. You can only punish people who have a life. But if you have no life, you can't really punish them effectively. There's no effective punishment, and so that's that kind of like you, uh, you can though because there's there's um, there's negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. So, for example, if you if you want to give if you want to reward your child for doing well, you can either give them a PlayStation, which is a positive reinforcement, or you can take something away. So remove their need to do the chores, for example, and that can act as a reward. The same as if you want to punish someone, you can either give them a punishment by punching them in the face, not that I'm condoning that, or you can take something away from them, take away their PlayStation that can be a punishment. So as part of the operant conditioning, you can still punish them, but I, I get what you're saying. It's harder to punish them punish someone but the, if, if you're, you're living on skid, you're living on skid row and you have nothing and you can't get a job because you have no employment history and you have a, a, a record you're an arm as long as your arm and you have no money whatsoever and you have no car and you're living on the streets there's nothing to take away from you <laughs> No, that's what true. You yeah, you, you There's go no from, PlayStation you go, to take away. You know? yeah, yeah, you go. You're going from uh, from no square meals to three square meals and a bed. <laughs> yeah, no, the punishment is better than the the was before. So you know, but I think that's the minority, isn't it? The the people who fall in that category are, uh, are probably going to be few and far between. I would suspect, but oh, again, I think anything, the majority the majority of crimes are committed by just such people. You know, I think you know to a certain extent. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe them them types of crimes, I suppose. But I think with anything, there has to be some bespoke level of. Um, thinking as to what well anyway this other fella what happened to this other fella's girlfriend is uh, a, a year after he was placed into the in the year after after he was placed in the facility she died of alcoholism <laughs> so <laughs> so it's like the stoics say the the uh, you know the the crime is the punishment <laughs> what's your favorite stoic phrase or thought I always like it. There's several of them. Like um, Epictetus uh, once said that uh, Epictetus once said that uh, somebody stole his lamp, and of course that's an expensive thing in the ancient world. He he was very poor. Somebody uh, stole his lamp outside his house, but he said uh, I got the better end of the deal because I kept my soul. But the seal, the 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 thief stole the lamp and lost his soul, so I got the better end of the deal. And then you have the, of course, the famous, let's see if I can scroll through it, the famous quote by Marcus Aurelius. And let me get it right here. Begin the morning by saying to yourself, I shall meet with the busybody, the ungrateful, the arrogant, the deceitful, the envious, and unsocial. All these things happen to them because they are ignorant of what is good and evil. But I can be injured by, but I cannot be injured by any of these. For no one can fix on me what is ugly, nor can I be angry or my kinsmen, nor hate them. So I like I like that concept. In yeah, other words, yeah. uh, and I think really um, that's that's why I like the corrective of Stoicism. Uh, a lot of Christians believe that somehow you you do good things and you're going to be rewarded. And I agree. You know, and that's just not what happens. And if God brings suffering into his life, he must not be a just God because that's the concept of the the, the Odyssey. The why do good things bad why do bad things happen to good people? Well, bad things are going to happen to all of us. And so, rather than asking God to rescue us from our sufferings, we ask God to strengthen us so we can endure our sufferings. And that's, I think yeah. that's lost in a lot of you know modern uh, in, in the modern culture. This sense yeah. that you know you just have to survive what life throws at you. And it's like you know like the old like the Iliad says Zeus some. To some, Zeus gives a basket that's full, and to some, he gives baskets that are empty. And that's just the way it is. 
Yeah, you've got, um, you got carved it out, don't you? And we should wish, as you said, not for an easy life, but to become better. That's that's what we should basically well, I think, I not think wish really, for, I but think, expect. Um, I think really, it, it, I think a better way to put it is that if we have a blessed life, we should let our blessings improve our soul. And if we have a difficult life, we should have our sufferings improve our soul. Whatever happens to us should improve us and not make us worse. Yeah, there's so, there's so many stoic quotes about things like that as well. Like, basically, if your life's going bad, you should look at it as a as a blessing because it, um, it gives you a chance to fundamentally uh, become better, essentially. There's, there's, there's about 10 different quotes there. The, coming back to your quote about the morning thing with uh, Marcus Aurelius, because, yeah, he gets up in the morning and says, oh, I might meet this kind of person today, this kind of person. But then on the flip side, he's got... Because um, I'm writing a book about quotes at the moment. It's something along the lines of waking up in the morning and remembering what a precious privilege privilege it is to be alive. I think uh, is, is the other one. Um, I think it's Rock's Radius anyway. But there's so many quotes, and I I actually listen in listen to or, or read Stoic quotes every day because it sets me up for the for the day really well. Um, and it and every time you listen to stuff, you know, like Heraclitus says um, about the river, you know going to river, neither the man nor the river is the same. And it's exactly the same. Every time you read the quote, it hits you a little bit differently, I think, um, depending on where you are in, in your own life. So, um, so yeah. Is there anything... Here we go. Sorry? Go ahead. No, I was going to say... Yeah, like Rufus, like Masonius Rufus, speak of shameful things and you will, you will lose your reluctance to do them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the other one, similar to shame, it's like the shape when you do something out of um out of um like do something bad basically the 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 fun passes quickly but the shame endures but when you do something out of labor the pain passes quickly but the the elation or something endures basically so so yeah there's so many good ones um for people to to listen to or or to read about is there anything that from a either a stoic suspect well stoical philosophic philosophic perspective or from the dementia side that we've maybe not covered that you want to cover um i think basically um you know of course the, the what we're struggling with in our country is uh, the civil rights issues and you know the black lives matter and social justice you know a lot of christians really somehow feel that that's um uh, you know that that's this this idea that you should pull yourself by up by your own bootstraps and this uh thing that uh you know you don't 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 give a man a fish but teach him how to fish you know that that sort of philosophy can only go so far and there are just people you just in this life that you just have to help it that's just the way it is and they're not and some of them are not going to be grateful and so i think that uh uh really uh that is the one thing that uh one of the things one of my causes is trying to re you know tell my christian friends that hey you know you need to be compassionate towards your neighbor we're losing compassion i mean it was like an article in the atlantic that really summed it up um you know summed up the and it's really kind of like this one article has taken hold the cruelty is the point you know so many so many christians tend to be cruel in, rather than compassionate in their dealings with their you know, more disadvantaged neighbor. And so, and, and that is, and, and, and you see the same sort of traps happening in, in, um, in Catholicism and in, uh, in the years before World War II, where they really uh, fell towards fascism for many historically complicated reasons. Yeah, I've and got so a great think... example as well of, of, of that. So from Zen, Zen philosophy, like they have these koan stories. And there's one where... Um, there's there's basically the 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 Zen philosopher who's obviously got a school of people who he looks after, and they're all you know great students apart from this one guy. This one guy started stealing from him, um, and he stole from him, and everyone knew that he stole from him basically, and he stole again, and everyone kept going to the main the main teacher, the main guru, saying, "Look, you've got to get rid of this guy, you know, from from the school because you know he's stealing." So what he did is he brought everyone into the room. And said, look, who who thinks that we should get rid of this thief? And they all said, yeah, I think we should get rid of this thief. And he says, you're you're you shouldn't be students of mine because actually you don't understand the fact that he needs to be here more than you do. 
because he's he doesn't know stealing's bad but you do and i think that's a really powerful message and as you said you know you have to help people sometimes and even if they don't always want to help themselves from what you said earlier about the virtue is it down to 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 you to try and instill virtue in someone and take it upon yourself to do something as opposed to leave it for someone else because if everyone leaves it to someone else you know who's actually going to go ahead and do something yeah yeah basically yes Where so can... i think that that's sorry go on i like one of the stoic the the, the one of the uh mandela nelson mandela has was a uh, also a proponent of stoicism and uh i i you know read read his his book uh, long road to freedom and he when he was in prison he had lots of time on his hands and he started reading the stoic philosophers and really started um you know adopting many of the stoic attitudes and i think it really helped him as he progressed in his political career and got released from prison and whatnot and so uh i i see that as um yeah, you know, is something that uh, is poorly understood in this country, anyway. Absolutely. Is it if people want to reach out to you and um, regarding the YouTube channel or, or you personally, how can they go about doing that? Uh, well, it's the um, it's www.youtube.com, and now they have the handle. You can do the the, the backslash at reflections mph reflections plural. MPH, like miles per hour, but morality, philosophy, and history. So love it, love it, fantastic. So, um, well, so I thank you for I thank you for having me on, and uh, you know, you know, we have a lot of other topics we could cover. You know, yeah, so. absolutely. I was going to say, um, I think it'd be good to do a, a part two, um, because there is a lot of knowledge that you've got, and it would be great to maybe veer up in a slightly different direction or tangent next time. Um, so yeah, I'd be happy to have you back on, uh, Bruce. Okay. Okay. That'd be grand. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks again.